Okay. Uh, I invite you to kneel with me. Now, if you if you can't kneel, that's fine. If you, you know, uh, you don't have to kneel. But if it's uh, painful or anything like that, you don't have to kneel. But um, let's come together and let's, let's, uh, let's come before the Lord here. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy holy name. Father, we praise your name. We praise you for uh, your love and your justice but also Your mercy. We know that You are a loving God who cares intimately for us, even in the smallest of matters, and that You care for us deeply. You cared for us so much that You gave up Your Son. This is the time of year, Lord, that the people, um, they recognize as the the birth of Jesus. Uh, We know the truth in such ways, but uh, we appreciate so much that gift to us. The gift of Jesus. And not only becoming like one of us for all eternity, it's just something that just boggles the mind, uh, but that He would die uh, in our place, even for eternity, if it meant that we could have eternal life. And so from the bottom of our hearts and from our whole hearts, we we praise Your name and we thank You for such a precious gift. We thank You for the Sabbath day that we can come together and worship together and sing praises together and encourage one another. And, And Lord, to spend time getting a taste of heaven. We pray for holy angels to be here and to remove any, any demon angels, any evil influences so it may truly be a holy Sabbath together. And Lord, we, we appreciate the opportunity that You've given us to pray for others. My brother Emmanuel has been told about a friend. His name is Lee Rawls. And he, has, he has bone cancer. And, and that's tough. That's hard. Um, that's a terrible thing. We know that You wish us to be in good health. And You've given us laws to live by for that. With this brother, he he needs our intercessory prayer. He needs your mercy. And so we lift him up. We pray, Lord, that he will be drawn closer to thee and be healed according to thy will. We lift up, brother and sister Ellis. We're making arrangements for a place to live, and we also need the funds for that and also for transportation. They made a long journey here from Louisiana to move. And... uh, Lord, help us to minister to their needs. Uh, Our sister in Battle Creek, Susan, is ill. Uh, She has uh, different issues with uh, injuries as well. We pray, Lord, for Your healing hand to touch her. Uh, Our sister Robin's not here. We pray that You encourage her and be very near to her. And we are very thankful for the the update, the encouraging news about uh, Tony's mother, Linda, uh, that she is improving enough and uh, may be put on the donor's list for a liver. And Lord, we pray for Your people. We pray for our church here and the one in Battle Creek and for the coming year. Uh, We know that uh, the angels are holding back the winds and, and that You wish everyone who can be saved to be saved. And so Lord, help us to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to stand up for the three angels' messages and share them with all and warn the world of His soon coming so that sin and death can finally be destroyed forever and we can be among the redeemed. We thank You again, Lord, for the Sabbath day that we can come together and, and study from the inspired writings. And as we look at Jesus in our study here, uh, Lord, I pray that You give me the thoughts You wish conveyed uh, to the people. May they be Your words. May they sanctify the people. And may we bring glory to Thy name. And Lord, we pray that You forgive us our sins. Jesus died at Calvary for humanity. Why would we reject such a gift? We pray that You forgive us and wash us clean. And may what we think and do and say bring glory to Thy name from this moment forward forever. We pray in Jesus' name. 
I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk about my favorite subject today. Does anybody have any idea what my favorite subject is? Maybe I should ask what your favorite subject is. I'm going to talk about Jesus today. You know, I think of the hymn, Jesus is all the world to me. I hope that that resonates in your hearts as well. Jesus should be all the world to you. I'm entitled this study, Against All Odds. Now, many many know, who've known me for a while, know that I, I, really, uh, I really enjoy history. I read history a lot. Uh, in particular, uh, U.S. history is, is probably my favorite, but I like world history as well. Uh, let me tell you this, to be a student of prophecy, Bible prophecy, you need to also be a student of history. Because the, to correctly understand prophecy, you're going to have to understand history in order to know whether it has been fulfilled or not. That just makes sense, doesn't it? I'm going to talk a little bit here about, to begin, about uh, the founding of this country. You know, despite their vocal and defiant protests against a par- parliamentary law, which is what it was, uh, During the 1760s, the 1770s, the colonists went to war against their mother country very reluctantly in 1775. Americans had every reason to be tentative about the prospect of war with their former country. I mean, after all, if you look at it, were not the odds stacked against them for success? The British military mustered the greatest military force on earth at that time. General William Howe, the general for Britain, had 32,000 men under his command. And that's just General Howe himself. He also had a powerful naval fleet. You know, when the British ships sailed into New York Harbor early in the summer of 1776, they composed the greatest fleet ever seen in American waters. Did you know that? British forces were the best trained. They were the most well-equipped military in the world. George Washington, on the other hand, he led a combined force of approximately 19,000 Continentals and a bunch of ragtag militiamen almost all of whom had very little formal military training or experience and who were unaccustomed to being told what to do. How would you like to have an army, but they really didn't like you to tell them what to do? Desertions among the enlisted men increased as the war dragged on, and the size of the army fluctuated uh, accordingly. It peaked at about 20,000 in the early months of the war, but was reduced to half that number. It actually went as low at times um, as 5,000, especially during the winter at Valley Forge. Sometimes only two to 3,000 soldiers were ready for battle. And in August of 1775, Washington received a report that colonial gunpowder stores amounted to less than 10,000 pounds. Now let me put that in perspective. Considering the number of soldiers he had, that was enough powder for about nine shots per man. Doesn't sound like it's very encouraging, does it? By one account I read, when Washington heard this news, he was so stunned by the report that he didn't utter a single word for over half an hour. Knowing this, knowing those things recorded in history and against such odds, it begs the question, how did the Americans win? You know, as you look through documented history, you can find instances of overcoming incredible odds. 
or beating the odds, uh, like the colonists who banded together against all odds to defeat the greatest nation on earth at that time. One thing to realize is very important. Most did so out of principle and not preference. Guys who lived through valley, that Valley Forge experience with no shoes or socks in one of the bitterest winters North England ever had, do you think they were there by preference or by principle? They believed in liberty. They believed in freedom. That was their principle. Many people make decisions based upon the odds of success before anything else, don't they? What are the odds that this is going to come out in my favor, right? Fulfilling the odds can change a person. It can change one's belief altogether. In fact, there's one particular case of beating the odds that has changed millions of lives and continues to do so to this day. Do you know that? There is one particular case of beating the odds. And that's what I'm going to speak about today. This one particular case. In the Old Testament Scriptures, there are 300 specific predictions concerning a Messiah who would be born to save the world. 300. Now there are more, but there are 300 specific predictions. I mean, the prophets of the Bible, they deal with His birth, they deal with His life, they deal with His death in hundreds of instances. Now all Christians, I would say... All Christians are familiar with this prediction. It's found in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, especially this time of year. In Micah 5 verse 2 it says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Aren't we familiar with that prediction concerning the Messiah? This is the prediction that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Now there was another Bethlehem. Many people didn't don't realize this. There was another Bethlehem, and it was called Bethlehem, and it was in Zebulun. So when you you see Micah five verse two, you you realize God is very specific, isn't He? So there won't be any uh, uh, cause for confusion. And He says. Bethlehem Ephrata. Was this prediction fulfilled by Jesus of Nazareth? Was Jesus of Nazareth born in Bethlehem Ephrata? Matthew 2 and verse 1 says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And by the way, they also called Bethlehem Ephrata uh, Bethlehem Judea. So there's no confusion. Andrea, could you do something for me? Or Josh? There are books right there and the sun's hitting them and they're blinding me. There's a reflection. No, no. Keep going. Those right there. Ah, thank you very much. I'm getting this sunshine in my eyes here. Remember, let's follow in the light of God's countenance. God's light is blinding, isn't it? But Jesus was born. Here's a prediction, Micah 5.2, that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem, Euphrata. And Jesus of Nazareth was born in Bethlehem, Judea. Same city. Same little town. Now let me ask you, is that enough to prove Jesus to be the Messiah? Is that one prediction enough to prove? I mean, was Jesus the only person born in Bethlehem, Judea? Bethlehem, Euphrata? No, He wasn't. What are the odds that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem? Pretty good, actually. But if this was the only prophecy, think about this, if this was the only prophecy with the Messiah, dealing with the Messiah, it would be rather worthless. Wouldn't it? Because there were thousands who were born in Bethlehem. (laughs) 
But when combined, though, see, with other predictions concerning the Messiah, we begin to see the odds increase dramatically that it would be one person that would fulfill these things. In fact, for all the prophecies concerning Messiah to be, to be fulfilled in the life of only one person, there wasn't one chance in 84, follow me here, I know you, some of you don't like math, there would be one chance in 84 times 1 to the 100th power that that would ever occur let me put that in. If you have your bulletins, look at the front. That would be 84 with 100, 100 zeros after it. Yes. That the um, all the prophecies concerning the Messiah would be fulfilled in the life of only one person. You see, there are many false Christs that arose throughout the Old Testament. And, yeah, there may have been somebody who was born in Bethlehem or Frada. There may have been someone who did this particular thing that may have fulfilled this prophecy. Maybe two or three. And they would deceive the people. But there are 300, over 300, but 300 main predictions concerning the Messiah. Which means the Messiah had to fulfill all of them to actually be the Messiah. You see what I'm saying? And so the odds of that, you calculate mathematically, the odds of that, that it would be fulfilled in one person are 84 with 100 zeros behind it to one. Incredible odds. Well, that's actually called a Google. And it's not Google as the search engine. It's Google. G-O-O-G-A-L. In particular, that's what that's called. One to the 100th power is called a Google. So it would be 1 in 84 Googles. That's 84 with 100 zeros past it. That's a pretty large number, isn't it, Brother Ellis? I, I can't comprehend that number. I can't comprehend... You know, used to be when, when somebody was a millionaire, that meant, boy, they were pretty rich, but in today's world, it seems like that because of inflation, that's not very much anymore. Now they talk about people being billionaires. I can't even comprehend what a billion is, let alone this number. It's astronomical. Yet, beloved, it did happen. And the man who fulfilled all of the prediction is, is none other than who? Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whose life has influenced history more than any other man who has ever been born. Not only did this Jesus of Nazareth fulfill the hundreds of predictions concerning the Son of God, against all odds... But he also claimed to be the fulfillment of those predictions. He spoke confidently of having all authority and power in heaven and earth. He professed to completely control the laws of nature. He claimed lordship over the angels. He accepted the worship of men. And he stated that he would be the final judge of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. There are others throughout history who have made similar claims at various times and places, but they were regarded as frauds and fakes. Christ is the only person. Jesus of Nazareth is the only person known to history who has claimed divinity and yet who has been accounted sane by the human race. Have you ever considered that? Somebody comes up to you and says, yes, I am God. Usually one of the first things you think of is this person has lost their mind. Not so with Jesus of Nazareth. The founders of other religious systems such as Muhammad and Buddha, they didn't claim to be God incarnate. And this is where Christianity differs from all other religions. Jesus spoke and lived as a being whose dwelling place was eternity. And He alone of all mankind has convinced millions of all ages and races and, and walks of life that His claims to divinity were genuine. As with all religions, 
Think about this. The truth of them, if they're true, stands or falls with the person of its founder. The same is true with Christianity. It'll either stand or fall upon its founder. Jesus believed His claims so implicitly that He was prepared to risk not only His own life, but the lives of His friends as they too advocated the Gospel. He foretold that His followers would be persecuted and be put to death. And yet He intimated all that such, also that such a fate was a light thing in comparison with the importance of establishing His sovereignty over all the world. It's really a light thing to lift up and show that He is the Savior of mankind. You know, Christ's claims even survived the test of apparent failure (laughs) on the cross after being rejected by His own nation and religious leaders. He could still behave as the King of Eternity, promising heaven to a repentant criminal on a cross next to Him. And interceding as calmly for His enemies as though He were peacefully walking along the Sea of Galilee. It's also clear from the record of His life that this man's deeds matched His words. Today, no man ever acted as that man acted. You see, friends, if one flaw can be found in the gospel accounts of Jesus, the whole picture would be blemished and Christ's claims would vanish away. But the great news is that for over 2,000 years of scrutiny, no such flaws exist. I was thinking about that. Consider this. Had Christ never lived it would have required his equal to invent the unique story of his life. You know what I'm saying? In other words, a life like his could not have been invented as many scoffers claim it has. Our imagination isn't great enough to come up with such a life as the life of Jesus. Truth is sometimes considered stranger than fiction. You could not have made up a life like that of Jesus of Nazareth. You couldn't do it. And the Gospels tell us He did so many more things that there aren't enough books. The books would fill all heaven and earth with the works of Christ. The human mind is not advanced, is not capable of coming up with a life like that. as the scoffers will claim. It's impossible. Despite his insight into the nature of man and his understanding regarding truth and morality, he himself seemed never conscious of personal guilt. That's the story of his life. And... This is where Jesus of Nazareth differed from all other good men. You know, it's been said of Christ that if He was good, then He was God. For good men do not lie regarding themselves. And look how good He was in His life. Now, let's take a look at some more of those predictions that identify Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior of the world. Part of these odds. Let's first go to Psalms 55. And let's look at verse 12. And if you have doubts, and we're going to look at maybe a dozen, a dozen of the prophecies together here, and I'll tell you, for most of humanity, and probably 
for all of humanity, that should be enough. But God never leaves anything incomplete. He wants it to be more than just enough. Isn't that true? Psalms 55 verse 12 says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me, then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. You know, if an enemy does you dirty, you expect it, don't you? Because he's an enemy. It's a lot easier to bear. Isn't that what, what's being said here? But when, when it is one of your closest friends, that's what hurts. Betrayal. That hurts. And so the prophecy continues. Actually, if you turn back to Psalm 41.9, it says, Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. So, here in the Psalms, you get these, get this, this prediction that the Messiah is going to be betrayed not by enemies, but somebody very close to him. A friend. Someone who ate meals with him. Lived with him. Family. Was this fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, yes. You remember as you read the Gospel story in Matthew in particular Matthew 26, when Judas led his delegation into the garden to where Jesus had just finished his intercessory prayer, Garden of Gethsemane, Judas came up to Jesus and what did he do? He kissed Him, didn't he? Do enemies kiss enemies? Jesus turned to him and He said, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Friend. Judas was his friend. At least Jesus considered him as his friend. Judas was one of the twelve. He was one of his closest associates. He was the treasurer of the group. And yet he was the one who portrayed Jesus. Was this prophecy fulfilled? Yes, it was fulfilled. Let's look at another prophecy concerning the Messiah. It's found in Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah chapter 11 and verse 12. Jesus is betrayed by... Judas. Here's a prediction. Zechariah 11, verse 12. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. The words of Judas, the one who portrayed Jesus, are spoken here several centuries before he was even born, telling how he'd be. You know, dickering with the priests for compensation and delivering Jesus up to them. You find the fulfillment in Matthew 26. We'll spend a lot of time in Matthew 26, 27. Might put your finger there. Matthew 26, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. As Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16. 30 pieces of silver. At that time, 30 pieces of silver was equivalent to about four months' wages. It was also uh, the current price of a slave. You know, Joseph. You remember Joseph, right? Joseph was sold as a slave by his brothers for 20 pieces of silver, so the price of a slave had gone up. (laughs) 
And the prophecy didn't end there. You go back to Zechariah 11, verse 13 tells what was to happen to that money. Hundreds of years before it happened. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it unto the potter, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. If you go back to Matthew 27, here's the fulfillment. Verse 3. Matthew 27. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? What's that tell you about their heart? What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Judas was upset that his plan failed. He wasn't upset that he had done wrong. But after Judas saw what he had done and saw that Jesus wasn't going to deliver himself, which he thought Jesus would do, his conscience hurt him enough to come back to the priest and say, look, I've sinned in that I've betrayed innocent blood. And he threw the pieces of silver at their feet right there in the house of the Lord, just like prophecy said he would. Then he turned, he went out, and he, he hung himself. I found it very interesting, and, and maybe you do too, that it is the betrayer who steps forward as the only witness to testify to the innocence of Jesus. Talk about the biggest irony, the greatest irony. He betrays him, and yet he's the only witness to testify of his innocence. Of course, the Sanhedrin completely ignored this new testimony introduced into the trial by the confession of Judas. <laughs> In fact, his, his confession must have greatly embarrassed, embarrassed the leaders, if you think about it, because their complicitness in the plot was just made known. It was just made public to anybody who was standing around. It became evident that they had bribed Judas, and this act was a direct it was a violation of the laws of Moses, which they prided themselves to uphold. You can see Exodus twenty three for that. Speaking of violating the law, as a side note, let me share these very quickly with you, because this is really interesting. This partial list of Jewish judicial laws that were broken in the trial of Jesus. One law was that charges involving the penalty of capital punishment must be tried by day. You were never to have a trial at night. That was also true of civil cases. But did they try Jesus during the day? No. Another one. The verdict in capital cases must be rendered by day. Did they come to a a judgment during the day or at night? It was at night. An unfavorable verdict in a capital case must be postponed until the day after all evidence has been heard. They didn't follow that. Because an unfavorable verdict in a capital case had to be postponed till the day after the hearing closed, such a case could not be heard on Friday or on the day preceding a religious festival. But they did it on the Passover. Witnesses who bore contradictory, contradictory testimony were to be disqualified and their testimony rejected. Oh boy, they, they didn't do that. <laughs> The charge of blasphemy on the basis of which Caiaphas demanded the death penalty was invalid. According to the law, the blasphemer is to be is is punished only if he utters the divine name itself, which is Jehovah. 
And the punishment for blasphemy was death by hanging or stoning. Jesus didn't use the sacred name for God, nor was He hanged or stoned. A man condemned to death by stoning was to be afforded every opportunity for witnesses to testify in his behalf. Notice, I took this from their, directly from their law. And I can get the reference for you if anybody wants it. But notice what the law stated. It says, quote, A man was stationed at the door of the court with the signaling flag in his hand, and a horseman was stationed at a distance yet within sight of him. And then if one says, Oh, I have something further to state in his favor. The signaler waves the flag and the horseman runs and stops them from stoning this man. And even if he himself says, I have something to plead in my own favor, he's brought back even four or five times, providing, however, that there is substance in his assertion. If then they find him innocent, they discharge him. But if not, he goes forth to be stoned. And a herald precedes him, crying, So-and-so, the son of so-and-so, is going forth to be stoned because he committed such-and-such an offense, and -and so-and-so are his witnesses. Whoever knows anything in his favor, let him come and state it. Well, it's pretty obvious that... These provisions were disregarded at the trial of Jesus, isn't it? Trial was uh, to be before a group of judges selected be oh, excuse me, the trial was before a group of judges selected because of prejudice against the accused, with the deliberate exclusion of members friendly to him. So it was a prejudiced group of judges. That that was against their law. They were to be unbiased judges. He was treated as a condemned criminal before being legally tried and found guilty. And according to Jewish law, just as American law, a man was considered innocent until proven guilty. And that was actually opposite of certain parts of Roman law. Certain parts of Roman law, you're guilty, and at that time, you're guilty until proven innocent. In other words, if you were, in some of their laws, if you were caught in the act, they considered you guilty and you had to prove you're innocent if you were supposedly caught in the act. And here's, here's another one. Sentence of death cannot be based upon one's own testimony. Jesus testified, but it wasn't... You know, they, could, they said it was blasphemy. See? They condemned Him because of His own testimony. And that broke their law as well. So, I want to share those because you begin to see how much they hated Jesus. In fact, it becomes even more apparent how ungodly these men truly were. We read in inspiration that they were controlled by demons. Such pious hypocrites and vipers as Jesus referred to them. Here's another part of the prophecy we were talking about. And it's quite a problem for these priests. Remember, get back to it. We were talking about the prophecy dealing the 30 pieces of silver and being cast down on the ground and Judas went and hung himself. Here's another part of the, the problem for these priests concerning this prophecy. They have the money laying there in front of them. What are they going to do with the money? Now, if someone in that group at that time would have said, well, let's put it in the treasury. And they t- let's say they took it and they put it in the treasury. Do you realize that if they had done that, the Bible would not be true and Jesus wouldn't be the Son of God? Do you realize that? But the Bible is true. And the reason I say that is because it wouldn't have fulfilled prophecy for the Messiah. Here's the actual account of what they did with the money. It's Matthew 27, verses 6 to 10. And the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for to put them into the treasury. See that? Because it's the price of blood. Oh, wow, they're really concerned by that. And they took counsel and they they bought with them the... What? Potter's. Potter's Field. Didn't we read that before? 
Zechariah 11, verse 13. The Lord said, Cast it unto the potter. Cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. And they took counsel and they bought within the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore, that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by supposed to be Jeremiah, Zechariah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. So they scooped up the, the thirty pieces of silver and they went and they bought the potter's field as the prophet said they would do several hundred years before. Again, proving the Bible is true and that this prediction was fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, that He is the Son of God. In Isaiah 15, verse 6, prophet Isaiah, and this is way back 750 years before the birth of Jesus, he said, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. How did they treat Jesus? His trial? Isn't it like Isaiah said? Matthew 26, verses 67 and 68. Then did they spit in His face and buffeted Him. That's they hit Him. And others smote Him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, Thou Christ, who is, who is He that smote Thee? Another fulfillment of prophecy in the life of Jesus and Nazareth. Isaiah 53.7 tells us He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before His shearers is dumb, so He opened not His mouth. Go again to the Gospel story in Matthew. Notice what happens when Jesus is brought before them and they accused Him falsely. It's Matthew 27. In verse 12. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witnessed against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. As a lamb to the slaughter he's brought, as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Here Jesus stands before that howling mob and they are bringing all sorts of railing accusations against Him and Jesus answered, not a word. He was silent. And by the way, that's an example to us. I think everyone else would have screamed out and told them of the lies that they were telling. In Isaiah 53 and verse 12, it talks about two or three other things that would happen. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He made intercession for them while they are crucifying Him. You know, the Gospels tell us when they, when they brought Him up to that place of crucifixion there on Golgotha's hill, they laid the cross down and they stretched Him on it. Then the hammer and the nails were, were brought and as they raised that hammer and drove those spikes through His hands and feet, Jesus looked up and He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't realize they're nailing the Son of God to the cross. From the book Desire of Ages, let me share this with you. It's on page 744. The Savior made no murmur of complaint. Let those words sink in. They beat Him. He was scourged twice. 
78 lashes. You know, the majority of people died after one scourging. They were to be given 40 lashes, but they always stopped at 39 just in case somebody miscounted. 78 lashes. Metal pieces and stones hitting your back and ripping pieces of skin and flesh from you. 78. The loss of blood. The thorns in his brow and on his head. Ripped pieces of beard from him. Nailed him to a cross. The Savior made no murmur of complaint. As a lamb. Is that what we read? As a lamb is brought, as a sheep before its shears is dumb. She says, His face remained calm and serene, but great drops of sweat stood upon his brow. There was no pitying hand to wipe the death dew from his face, nor words of sympathy and unchanging fidelity to stay his human heart. While the soldiers were doing their fearful work, Jesus prayed for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His mind passed from his own suffering to the sin of his persecutors and the terrible retribution that would be theirs. No curses were called down upon the soldiers who were handling him so roughly. No vengeance was invoked upon the priests and rulers who were gloating over the accomplishment of their purpose. Christ pitied them in their ignorance and guilt. He breathed only a plea for their forgiveness, for they know not what they do. The prophet had said 750 years before it actually happened that the Messiah would pray for them. And there on the cross, as they're nailing Him, He prays that their sin be forgiven. Let's stay there. That Friday afternoon, after they nailed Him on the cross, the multitude was looking on and the soldiers were getting ready to go away. And here were the garments of Jesus. You know, and it was a custom at that time that the soldiers who did the work of crucifying, they would be the ones who would take whatever that person had. Whatever was on them. And if you'd been there probably right after lunch, you would have seen that little group of soldiers all clustered to the side. They divided His clothing among themselves. But now they come to the cloak which was that seamless garment that Jesus had. And they didn't know what to do with that one piece. Because you see, they would divide it up evenly, see. Shall we cut it into four pieces and give each soldier, you know, a quarter of it? You know, if they had, he wouldn't have been the Son of God. Because a prophet had said a thousand years before that they would not be tearing it apart or cutting it apart. The prophet said they would cast dice to see who'd get it. Psalms 22.18 They'd part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. So they shoot the dice. And one of them gets the garment and the other three don't. John chapter 19, verse 23 Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took His garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Prediction, fulfillment, prediction, fulfillment, prediction, fulfillment in the life of Jesus and Nazareth. The psalmist predicted in Psalm 69, 21, They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Did they do that with Jesus? Matthew 27, verse 34, They gave Him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when He had tasted thereof, He would not drink.
Jesus had cried out, remember, My God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They thought he was calling for Elijah. One of the soldiers took a sponge, dipped it in vinegar, put it up to his lips to quench his thirst, but Jesus didn't drink it. He didn't want anything to benumb his senses. Friends, that's a very strong principle for us to understand. God wants us to have sound minds so we can make right decisions. We're not to partake of anything that benumbs our senses. Jesus was suffering. He was dying for the sins of the world and He needed to know what was happening. The prophecy was fulfilled. Isaiah 53, verse 9, He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death because He had done no violence, neither was any deceit in His mouth. Matthew 27, verse 57, When the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Jesus was entombed in a wealthy man's grave as the prophet said would happen some 750 years before. Written a thousand years before it happened, the psalmist says in Psalms 22.16, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may... Tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. In Matthew 27, verse 39 says, And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Verse 41, Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders. They all stared at him. Just as the psalmist said, But the psalmist also said something else. That most people just go right on by. I mean, without digging through the surface of it. The psalmist said, They pierced my hands and my feet. This was predicting a death that was absolutely unknown at the time it was written. Death by crucifixion. The Romans invented death by crucifixion. It had never been heard of before. The prophet said that's how he would die, with his hands and feet pierced, nailed to a tree. And that is how our Lord died upon the cross of Calvary. Beloved, we've looked at a dozen or so out of the hundreds of prophecies dealing with the Messiah. The odds of one man fulfilling just eight. We've looked at a dozen. We've seen that he's fulfilled a dozen. The odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the hundreds of prophecies is phenomenal. Let alone all of the prophecies. Let me share with you how phenomenal how phenomenal it is just to fulfill only eight of the prophecies. Something that only one person has done to this day, by the way, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. A number of years ago, Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. The book was based on the science of probability, and it it was vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. It set out the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling just eight of the major prophecies dealing with the Messiah. Just eight. The probability that one man could have fulfilled just eight such prophecies would be one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's one followed by seventeen zeros. Now let's put that into perspective. Maybe something a little bit easier for us to understand. Stoner claims that many that, that many silver dollars, if you had silver dollars, that many silver dollars will be enough to cover the face of the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Okay? 
Texas is a big state. Okay? And then he says, notice this, he says, quote, Who in his right mind would suppose that a blindfolded man heading out of Dallas by foot in any direction would be able, on his very first attempt, to pick up one specifically marked silver dollar out of that one to the seventeenth power? (laughs) The birth, the crucifixion, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ are celebrated worldwide by people of every race, language, and color every year. And by believing in Jesus, they have been delivered from the most evil, disastrous, frustrating, debilitating habits and life forms possible. The real problem, friends, with Jesus Christ is not that people can't believe in Him. It's that they won't believe in Him. It is hard to comprehend how so many people ignore the evidence. Think about it. There are over 300 prophetic predictions in the Old Testament about the Christ, about the Messiah, and every one of them is fulfilled in this man, this Jesus of Nazareth. The odds of one man fulfilling these predictions again is one in 84 ghouls or one in 84 with a hundred zeros after it. Let me tell you something. Only God's true Son, only God's Son can fulfill those odds. I'm thoroughly convinced that Jesus is the Messiah who was to come. There is not a single doubt in my mind. Truly the greatest marvel in the universe. If He were not more than just a man, as so many try to tell us, it would certainly be impossible to explain the influence of His life and the uncanny chance that He somehow, virtually impossibly, against all odds, fulfilled every possible possible every prophecy concerning the Messiah. But everything about Him points to the fact that He is more than just a man. He's also God in the flesh coming to dwell among us and save us from ourselves. To save us from our sins. And I echo what the centurion said. Truly this man was the Son of God. So beloved, Jesus put the odds of our salvation in our favor. Won't you accept His invitation today and be saved for all eternity? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You so very, very much for Jesus. We thank You for Your Holy Word, that You're specific, that You fulfill Your Word, that there are no errors in the predictions. There are no doubts that can be made in history and in inspired writings that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is not the Son of God. The evidence is overwhelming. We've each been given a little measure of faith. And Father, I pray, that those who see me and can hear my voice will exercise that little measure of faith, investigate the evidence, and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We thank You, Lord, for the Sabbath day. We thank You for (laughs) this taste of heaven. And as families are gathered together this time of year to celebrate the birth of Jesus, may they truly come to accept Him and be among the redeemed. That is my prayer this day. In Jesus' name, amen.